This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and welcome to episode 11 of Prick the Balloon. I hope you've been enjoying these and learning a thing or two. If you do like the podcast, please make sure that you've clicked follow and that you've told everyone you know, plus sketchy strangers in line at the coffee shop, because I need to spread the good word. And if you don't like it, here's another episode to really piss you off. Ready, Rock? Yeah. I've got allergy trouble this week, so please bear with me. Today I want to talk about angry old men. Could be men with allergies. In this case, it's not. Now, I know many of you would say that that should be angry old white men. But take one look at Clarence Thomas and Herman Cain, and you know that we can't discriminate on this subject. Nor is it really just men. Marjorie Taylor Greene is certainly her own piece of work, or piece of something. When it comes right down to it, not all of these folks are even old. Many of them were trained from birth to be angry, like kids playing ball between the Model A's at a Klan picnic. And then there are the William F. Buckleys of the world, who became some cranky old right-winger via genetics. I mean, Buckley was probably swaddled in tweed. There are also some angry old men who grew into it later in life. John Cornyn, the guy who may well replace Mitch McConnell as the Republican leader in the Senate, started as a run-of-the-mill, business is more important than people conservative. But now, he just can't pass up a chance to obstruct all meaningful legislation, even things he said he wanted. And occasionally, he does a little old-fashioned race-baiting on the side. At one time, Rick Perry was a college cheerleader a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman, an Air Force officer, and gasp, a Democrat. But he got over it. Mofo. Finally, as long as we're reviewing the ground rules, it's worth mentioning that being an angry old man is quite a bit different than just being an eminently unlikable ass swab. So please, look up Ron DeSantis on your own time. These days, it seems like the shrillness just gets more and more petty and inconsistent. The most obvious recent one is the radical right-wing's collective and hourly soiling themselves over Taylor Swift. For the record, she was shown a total of 53 seconds of game time during the Super Bowl broadcast, and for you science deniers, that's less than a minute out of what was roughly a 256-hour-long game. Don't forget for a second that these maggots have given up watching football forever when Colin Kaepernick took a knee in favor of equal rights. Now they're apparently back after their first quarter of one-game hiatus, and they're livid enough to throw their bud light at the new TV they bought at Target. I should also point out these are the same folks who were badmouthing Usher's halftime show six days before it actually happened. What is this crap on my TV? Well, I got news for you, Mr. Smoot. You are no longer the halftime show demographic. Personally, I'm not quite to Social Security age, but I can definitely tell you that Paul Simon and Jackson Brown are no longer under consideration for next year's big game. Likewise, Merle Haggard's exhumed body won't be circling the 50-yard line while strapped to a mobility scooter. Although, that is a show I would probably stay and watch. Usher was not my favorite, I will admit that. I'm a Shakira man. 
but I completely understand that nobody gives a big rat's ass about my opinion. Like everything else, our American anger has not necessarily gotten worse. It's just that via social media and 24-hour click-driven news cycles, we see these kind of inanities all the time. They are in our face. Here's the hour's top story. Prince Harry was constipated last week, and the Twitterverse suggested Metamucil over stewed prunes by a 4-to-1 margin. A subsequent melee broke out in the prune aisle at a Buffalo-area Walmart. Here's staged video. And just a little FYI, a 12-pack, four tequila shots, and a half-dozen spicy tamales, and his hairiness will be right as rain. Meanwhile, don't let someone else's anger get you down. Still, we're going to talk about it. (laughs) I mean, yeah, we are. Lots of these diatribes start with a version of In My Day. You know, In My Day! shakes angry fist at roadway. I belong to various history groups online. And it's very common to read stuff like this used to be a great town when I was a kid in the 50s, but now it's a total shithole. Yeah, great town unless you were black or brown or Asian or gay or female. In other words, for roughly 65% of the population, the 1950s sucked louder than an incel at the malt shop. Plus, you were a kid, dude. You didn't have to go to work. Mr. Slade at the rock quarry wasn't climbing all up your third-grade ass. Of course, life was easy for you. Right up until that thousandth pack of camel non-filters made your left lung fall out. I mean, life was less idyllic for the unbelted young'uns who flew through the windshield out onto the county road, or the ones who had polio probably had a bad time, but thank God and John Birch that we don't have to take vaccines. Commie bastards. You know what? Just for grins, let's look at childhood mortality rates between 1950 and the year 2000. For starters, they were roughly twice as high, no matter what demographic group you were in. Here's a shocker. I hope you're sitting down. Death rates among black kids was the highest in 1950, just like it still is today. Death rates for black male children were two and a half times that for white male children. But by all means, Mr. Lohman, keep telling us how all lives matter. And by the way, can we just all agree that when the Angry Old Man movie comes out, he's got to be played by Lee J. Cobb? Okay, well, Lee J. Cobb's been dead for 50 years, so I'd settle for a live actor pretending to be Lee J. Cobb. But still, that guy was great. The leading cause of death for children in the 1950s was indeed accidents. Aside from the grinding hunks of Detroit steel that I mentioned earlier, there were no bike helmets, and we played with jarts. Sharpened javelins with a plastic flight on one end that you hurled at your friends in the front yard. Yeah, the 1950s were a freaking utopia, Sparky, especially when you got to impale your little brother on the boxwood hedge. Here's another one. We got spanked at school and we turned out just fine. Better, in fact. Yeah, that's that whole causation thing. You know, John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy, they probably got spanked at school too, I'm guessing. So did most of those Stanley Kowalski-looking dudes who have a snootful down at the tavern and come slap their wife around of a Friday night. That could be the pickled eggs talking, but I seriously doubt it. Maybe things could be the opposite of that Chuck Norris theorem. We turned out fine in spite of some of the physical abuse we received. But not everyone turned out fine, so how about we just try to make our kids' lives better? What do you say, boss? How about a cold glass of lemonade? When it comes to all this anger, 
we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, is this a partisan thing? Well, no. Not in the sense that there are plenty of angry people on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, let's face it, you know Bernie would like to bitch slap somebody if he could, right? But I think the anger comes from two different places. I think anger on the left is born from exasperation, like year after year of looking at your fellow humans and wanting to just grab them by the lapels and shake them and say, how can you not understand that denying lunch to small impoverished children is wrong? On the flip side, after six minutes of rigorous study by my youngest dog, it definitely appears that the biggest source of right-wing anger is the one I just talked about. Things aren't like they used to be. God damn it, change is hard. Then there's the third kind. Somewhat removed from politics is the old get-off-my-lawn syndrome. Don't touch that, that's mine. That's my tax money and you can't have it. And I'm not talking about Medicare and Social Security, where it literally is your tax money coming back directly to you and people need to keep their grubby paws far away. I'm talking about the kind of tax money that goes into the big pool. A big pool where sometimes kids leave a little squirt of pee. Tax money that was destined for what humans call the common good. But for some elusive reason, this prompts those gray geezers to start shouting, My kids are grown and I don't want to pay for schools. Or, Those free-loading dark people sit on their asses all day and make more money than I do. Well, for starters, the average food stamp recipient gets $181 a month, which won't even buy a good ounce of caviar. Meanwhile, they're fine with paying forty-five grand for the shifter knob in an Abrams tank. So is this whole old man anger thing confined to modern times? Is this a post-pandemic thing? Well, unless you started with Prick the Balloon episode 11 here, I think you already know the answer. Here's a fantastic quote for you. Children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise, end quote. Take a guess. Rand Paul? No. That was attributed to Socrates. Sacra fucking tees. About 415 B.C. Here's another one from the ancient Greeks. Quote, they contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers, end quote cross their legs, nervy whippersnappers. Some of the ancients recognized this for what it was. Aristotle wrote, and I'm quoting again, elderly men have often been taken in and often made mistakes, and life on the whole is a bad business. They are small-minded because they have been humbled in life. They are not generous because money is one of the things they must have, end quote. Of course, Aristotle said that when he was young. Three decades later, he was standing in the front yard yelling, Get off my Minotaur! But if you want the best ancient take on old men, here's one that the Roman poet Catullus wrote in his 20s. Let us love, and let us judge all the rumors of the old men to be worth just one penny. I mean, that is boss and groovy. It's exactly like Marvin Gaye after he'd been trying to hold back that feeling for so long. Let's get it on. Woo-hoo. There have been angry old men walking around for millennia. And, okay, shit, as long as we're on song lyrics, I have to fess up that for years I thought the words to that England Dan and John Ford Coley song were, I'm not talking about millennia. But it's the same message again. I really want to see you tonight. 
So perhaps the entire angry old men phenomenon can just be summed up as they're not getting any. But I have another 20 minutes of podcast to fill, so we might as well explore further. It's fun to play at ranking the angriest of the people in Congress right now. I mean, there are so many pages of that dirty book to leaf through. There are a few very angry liberals and about 16 zip codes full of angry Republicans, though none of them can fully articulate why they're so ticked off. When it comes to one of those crowd being angrier than the others, you couldn't separate them with WD-40 and a chisel. It's easy to go with somebody like Matt Gates, who's just cheesed that some online 14-year-old figured out that he didn't really go to her school. Or Chip Roy, who experienced the same rejection, except with a Brahma heifer named Sal. But I'm going to go with Nancy Mace, the first woman to graduate from the Citadel, an all-male military college famous for sexual abuse, criminal hazing, and having its own KKK chapter. So maybe her anger was poked into her like a pit bull with a stick. She's one of the eight Republicans who caused Kevin McCarthy to be kicked out as Speaker, and McCarthy may or may not be really pissed off about that himself. He'll get back to us after his brain holds its 17th ballot. In my book, Nancy Mace's winning performance was when she completely melted down over Hunter Biden having the nerve to show up at a hearing being held about him. She screamed, You have no balls! To which Hunter could have replied, Yeah, I'm not sure I can say the same about you after what I read in a bathroom stall at the Citadel. (laughs) But we're talking history, though, so eyes on the prize. Who are some of the ultimate angry old men who really did damage via their hatred and tunnel vision? I'm talking about the people whose anger turned into obstructionism that definitively damaged the entire country. Sadly, there are too many to list. Really even if we confine it to the second half of the 20th century. But when you talk about which angry old man was most responsible for putting us on this path of outrage we have right now, well, that's kind of an easy call. Newt Gingrich is probably the one who pushed hardest at the scorched earth, don't negotiate with Democrats message. Much of the political gridlock can be traced to his fat wife-cheating ass because he wrote the modern playbook for radical righties and how they allegedly should act toward their political opponents. And for the record, I am not fat-shaming old nudie. As they say down south, same dog bit me. But if you're listening, Newtster, you still might want to skip that third piece of lava cake. One of the plays in Newt's book was to have his staff stay up all night faxing flat-out lies to every small-town newspaper in the country. He just needed one or two to run his bullshit, and then it became an actual news story to quote. His goal was to become Speaker and then President, but his first step was to get rid of Speaker Jim Wright. So Newt made up a story that Wright owned stock in an oil company he had spoken up for. He didn't. It was a steaming pile, and when the larger papers picked up the story, they later printed a retraction. But you know how that works. The truth doesn't get screaming headlights that say, Retraction! This newspaper is run by gullible dumbasses. Though it sure as shit should, don't you think? Newt preached that Democrats were the enemy. Though today, he is completely irrelevant even in his own home, he is still out there, telling the same thing to any random camera that passes by. The enemy. Even Reagan, who did more lasting damage to the country than anyone, didn't buy into that shitty premise. 
even if you go back to the ancient times of cavemen, like the 1970s, you'll find politicians using a phrase like, my worthy opponent. Now, they didn't always believe their opponent was worthy, but they at least adopted that tone in public. Let's be clear. When JFK and Nixon shook each other's hands at the TV debates in 1960, Kennedy still looked at Nixon and thought, you pathetic little simpering crook. And Nixon still looked at Kennedy and thought, you overrated, mediocre, rich frat boy. But they put on the public face. As angry and paranoid as Nixon was in private, he still understood that you need to negotiate with the other side in order to get things done. And, in fact, the Nixon administration managed to slip a lot of good initiatives in there between the bombing and domestic espionage and what have you. The American government runs on compromise. It has to. And when there is compromise is when the public is best served. You don't have to be a centrist to understand that, just a student of government and history. Even the people pretty far to the left or right can get part of their agenda passed if they know how to work compromise. Get your sound bites and then go negotiate. That's how the system should work, when people can act with at least a modicum of reason and adultness. The trouble at the moment is that one party, and only one party, currently has a majority of elected officials who have no interest in being reasonable humans. They're only driven by rage and greed, even when they actually get what they've been asking for, such as the border bill that was several months in the making through a compromise. They change their minds, stomp their feet, clutch their blankies, and reach for their pacifiers because doing something to serve the electorate would be seen as a victory for the other side. That's why the non-angry normal folks on the right side of the aisle have given up and gone home. Why stay just so you can be punched in the face over being an actual human being? Ah, <sighs> deep sigh. I really do want to keep this within the last 80 years or so, ancient Greeks and Romans aside. I mean, there are some mind-blowing angry old men in the run-up to the Civil War. How could there not be? But we'll leave those horrors for another episode. So, this next angry old man is as far back as I want to go. But he gets my runner-up to Putin Toot Gingrich for the angry old man of the 20th century. Theodore J. Bilbo. Not only has one of the greatest names to make fun of in the history of American politics, but he was the actual face of segregation and open racism in the United States for 20 or 30 years. He was first governor and then senator from Mississippi. I know, Mississippi, you're shocked. An open member of the Klan throughout his life. Not one of those namby-pamby cluxers who tried to hide it or later backtracked. He admitted all of this on Meet the Press. Back when Meet the Press was on radio. Meet the Press, y'all. Bilbo got on there and said, quote, No man can leave the Klan. He takes an oath to do that. Once a Ku Klux, always a Ku Klux. End quote. The guy was five foot two and referred to himself in the third person, this tiny racist foghorn leghorn. I say, I say, Bilbo don't like the coloreds walking on the sidewalk. You want to talk about angry? Bilbo opposed things like fair labor practices. He spread a nasty rumor during the 1928 election that Herbert Hoover had, quote, socialized with a black woman. He pushed a bill to deport 12 million blacks from the United States to Liberia in order to relieve unemployment. That was his plan to stop the Great Depression. 
As governor, Bilbo fired the presidents of all three of the state universities and replaced them with non-educators. And then he told reporters, quote, Boys, we have just hung a new record. We bounced three college presidents and made three new ones in a record time of two hours. End quote. That's serious concern about higher education. Bilbo once lost an election over ticks. The first time he ran for Congress, he said he was in favor of requiring cattle to be dipped in order to eradicate a disease that was killing them off. But that was an unpopular position, since the Mississippi farmers said that cows covered in tick dip left a nasty smell on the pillowcases. <laughs> I'm kidding. Nobody in Mississippi had pillowcases. At least none without eye holes. He made headlines for giving a formal press interview while naked in a tub of water holding a bar of soap, a wash rag, and smoking a cigar. Once Bilbo got to the Senate, Bilbo shook his tiny old man fist against po-folks haters, shooters of widows and orphans, and I'm not making this one up, skunks who steal Gideon Bibles from hotel rooms. Like, why would somebody do that? Do people need thicker coasters? I'm lost. Bilbo's Senate colleagues hated him so much that when he won a third term, they refused to seat him over the fact that he wouldn't let blacks vote and was accused of taking bribes. And that was the Senate in 1946, hardly a bastion of squeaky clean ethics. You really had to be rubbing other people the wrong way like a grizzly bear masseuse. In the non-political spectrum of angry old men, I've got to give a shout-out to Hugh Roy Cullen, who was a hugely rich oil man. At a time in the 1930s, when the richest oil men in Houston were building mansions for anywhere between fifty dollars and $200,000, Cullen spent about $2 million on his new house and grounds. He was also supremely right-wing. I mean, I am talking way out on the tip of that last feather there. For example, he referred to the New Deal as, quote, the Jew Deal, end quote. He spent a ton of money fighting zoning in Houston because that constituted socialism. On the other hand, Hugh Roy Cullen was one of the most generous philanthropists in America in his day. In any day, really, by percentages. He established his Cullen Foundation with a gift of $160 million for education and medicine, and by 1955, Cullen had given away fully 90% of his fortune. Other people could take a major lesson from the man, right? But here's where the angry old man stuff comes in. His generosity and largesse almost single-handedly established the University of Houston. The first buildings on campus were all paid for by him and named for his family members. He was the longtime president of the Board of Regents. But when he got pissed off about something, Cullen would head down to campus, call a student assembly, and stand up there and rail and ramble for however long he wanted to about whatever communist or socialist or liberal bullshit as he saw it. He paid for the damn place, so who the hell was going to make him stop? You can only imagine the 19-year-old college student sitting at the back of the auditorium who just wanted a kegger and to get laid, going, who in holy hell is this old dude? But I also promised you women. Women, check it out, check it out. No cover charge. Boom, chicka, boom, boom. In episode 10, I mentioned Phyllis Schlafly. She is someone who I have seen called paleoconservative. I like that word. 
It means extreme radical right wing, but I like to think of it more in the Paleolithic sense, where she's eating liberals off the bone and her kitchen has nothing but stone tools. Not that she's dressed in some revealing little Betty Rubble number, mind you. Phyllis was nothing but buttoned up Bill Blast suits and two cans of Aquanet. The thing she is best known for is stopping the Equal Rights Amendment. I had talked before about her utilizing the Fairness Doctrine to get TV and radio time in order to deny her own gender equal rights. As is generally the case with the radical right, they love to rail against imaginary shit. Things that are just not reality. Open borders, anyone? The argument for Phyllis's anti-rights campaign was rather inexplicably that women would lose their rights. Her slogan said, Stop ERA and it looked like a stop sign, and stop stood for stop taking our privileges. She was going around telling people that women would lose their, quote, gender-specific privileges. She was among the first to trot out the gender-neutral bathroom bogeyman. I am surprised, by the way, the world hasn't spontaneously combusted over unisex airplane toilets alone. Phyllis had a meltdown over the idea that women could lose their dependent wife benefits under Social Security which ignores the premise that the ERA was indeed about women getting equal pay and equal job opportunities so they would not be dependent on their husbands for their very identity. But Phyllis saw that dependency as a really wonderful thing. And to be fair, I can see how Phyllis thought the ERA might ultimately cut in on her Tuesday Canasta Club and her opportunities to stoop the pool boy. The third one was that if the ERA passed, women would suddenly get drafted into combat service. Now, let's be clear that exactly no one in the military was pushing for this. Certainly not since Ariel Sharon lost his Pentagon job. More importantly, in 1977, when she was making this argument, there was no freaking draft. Period. For anybody. But she's telling people that if the ERA became law, the generals would suddenly say, By God, we can send women into foxholes now. We must restart the draft. Harumph! Schlafly got her start in politics as an aide to a St. Louis congressman named Claude Bakewell, an anti-labor but pro-integration guy whose main claim to legislative fame was fighting against the notion that songwriters and artists should get royalties when their music played on jukeboxes. Schlafly went on to become an activist by the end of the 1940s, and by any measure she was just consistently pissed at the world, like spittle at the corners of your mouth kind of angry. She joined the John Birch Society, which was the 1950s and 60s version of foil hats, pizza sex, ring groomers, microchip implants, and commie DNA added to the drinking water, loon atics. When old Phil wanted to get mainstream, she quit the Birchers and cut a deal with them whereby they would deny ever hearing of her. Schlafly led a revolt against Nixon at the 1960 Republican convention because Nixon was too liberal. Nixon was against segregation, and Phyllis and her pinched-faced cronies just could not have that shit. Not in my country. Mixing of races? She was adamantly against all nuclear arms reduction, because there are never enough ways to end the world. And she did not believe there was such a thing as marital rape, because in her words, a woman gave blanket consent when she got married. So, I'm putting Phyllis Schlafly at the top of my angry old women list, even though she started this horseshit when she was only 24. To paraphrase the great Ann Richards, poor Phyllis was born with a silver stick up her ass. 
Some of these angry conservative positions are honestly more out of perceived self-interest than pure D imaginarily punching out the neighbor type rage. They come across as mindlessly angry at the world, but in reality, they're just trying to save their own bacon. To make this point, I'm going to use another case from Texas. Pauline Wells was the wife of a political boss in the lower Rio Grande Valley, the southernmost mainland part of the contiguous 48 states, that little point at the bottom of Texas. Her husband's name was Jim Wells, and he was like this Mexican patron. Certainly there was graft and arm twisting going on, but he also kept his constituents very happy. Taxes stayed low, Sketchy land claims for the right people were defended. Government men protected the ranches against rustling. The railroad was promoted. Payments found their way to the poor. In return, the ranchers made sure that their Mexican and Tejano hands dutifully voted for Judge Wells. In short, Pauline Wells and her husband had a good thing going, and an enemy of that was change. So when the concept of women getting the vote started to gain traction, it put the fear of Lord Jesus himself into Jim and Pauline Wells and their conclave that the end might truly be at hand. As Wells put it, no one on earth can tell how they're going to vote or can control them. Woodrow Wilson had already shut down the whole idea of national women's suffrage, but the states started doing their own thing. By 1915, 11 states... Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Idaho, Washington, California, Oregon, Montana, Kansas, Arizona, and Nevada had all given women the vote. In Texas, the amendment to give women the vote had moved from 10 votes to 55 to 90, just four votes shy of the two-thirds needed to place the question on the statewide ballot. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, came Pauline Wells. She billed herself, of course, as Mrs. James Wells, because women did not deserve their own first name in those days, and she requested the opportunity to speak to the state senate in order to save the citadel of the home. And Pauline was good. She told the legislators that most women didn't want to vote in the first place, and that giving them the power would bring, quote, feminism, sex antagonism, socialism, anarchy, and Mormonism. End quote. Now, several of those words were not at all veiled code. Feminism and sex antagonism meant lesbianism, girl-on-girl action. Opponents often spoke about the suffragettes being unnatural man-haters who would sap the, quote, pep, meaning manhood, of American males. Boy, your pep is low. Here's a magazine. Pauline's cronies talked about innate female tendencies— such as lack of logic, being ruled by emotions, shallowness and irresponsibility, and how those traits would henpeck the U.S. government and military. These opponents, including Wells, went on that marriages and families would be torn apart if husband and wife disagreed over politics, and that all women would end up looking like Kellyanne Conway. And she added that suffragettes did not truly realize all the joys of housekeeping they would surrender by gaining the vote. I dare any married man hearing this to give that last argument a go. Come on, what are you scared of, you big puss? Some of Pauline's and her supporters' rhetoric was blatantly racist. One representative she was working with warned on the floor of the legislature that if women could vote, Texas would become just like California, where, quote, Negroes and whites intermarry, and the children of all colors sit together in the schoolroom, 
end quote. In spite of all of that hate spewing out of Pauline and her friends, I think the important part here is that those Texas politicians and their financial backers in the brewing, liquor, manufacturing, railroad, and ranching industries very much wanted to preserve the status quo under which they were making satchels full of money. After Pauline Wells spoke, the movement for suffrage in the 34th Texas legislature stopped dead in its tracks. She was Phyllis Schlafly before Phyllis got her first case of the vapors. But unlike Phyllis, Pauline was doing it for the money. With most of these misanthropes, there is zero awareness of their hypocrisy and inconsistency. A lot of these angry people are old, and they are apoplectic with Biden for being old. But the orange goon, who is equally old and infinitely more incoherent, is their hero. Yeah, Joe's old, but that seems to be all they can dig up on him. Old, as in might be down at the supermarket diner ordering pancakes at 7 a.m. so he can get free coffee refills before using today's coupon to save 30 cents on paper towels kind of old. Joe's also 100% in favor of democracy, and that should count for something. And of course, yes, try as I might to avoid mentioning him, the ultimate angry old man is still in our faces every tiresome day. I will point out, he is not a white man, he's freaking orange. Also, he's sweaty and he reeks of LePage's toupee adhesive. But he's stolen enough of our joy this week and every week. And this is a history podcast, so let's just make him history and move on. The most frequently recurring and definitely the group of angry old sons of bitches who can impact our American lives the most is the Supreme Court. No one on the current court has more bugs in his shorts than Clarence Thomas, although Alito really looks like he's sucking on moldy lemons 24-7, doesn't he? Uncle Thomas went through school on affirmative action, but has spent the last several decades making sure that no one else gets that same opportunity. Pulling the ladder up behind them, it's called. Just like that shit-stained Greg Abbott who got millions in a court case when a tree fell on him, but then made sure the laws were changed so that nobody else could ever sue for those same kind of negligent damages again. Anyway, as bad and corrupt as part of this current court undoubtedly is, the better court to examine is the one that FDR inherited during the worst years of the Great Depression. Charles Evans Hughes was the chief justice, and nine of the 11 justices had been appointed by Republican presidents. However, since party ideologies change, that did not necessarily mean they were all right-wingers. The court had four hardcore radical righties, known as the Four Horsemen, Van Devanter, Butler, McReynolds, and Sutherland. Negative waves, baby. And there were three relative liberals, Brandeis, Stone, and Cardoza, known as the Three Musketeers. Two of those three were appointed by Republicans, namely Coolidge and Hoover. Brandeis was the first Jewish person ever appointed to the court, and not surprisingly, he had a biatch of a confirmation fight. But he is the guy who first wrote about the right to privacy, or as he called it, the right to be left alone. He was a fierce advocate for freedom of speech. He's a supreme who you need to know more about. That left Chief Justice Hughes and a guy named Owen Roberts as the alleged swing votes, though not in a Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice kind of way. Roberts usually sided with the conservatives. So in theory, this court was less conservative than the one that we have now. But they faced a basic legal question of choosing between legal formalism and legal realism. 
In other words, whether the Constitution was meant to keep us all mired in 1787, or if the justices were actually required to open a freaking window and look outside occasionally. The reality at that point was that the country was in the worst economic condition in its entire history, hence the word great being used before depression. And FDR and the New Dealers were passing a flurry of legislation and setting up new programs to make things better. Admittedly, they were kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what helped. The court had already affirmed, admitting that they'd read the Constitution from the beginning, that promoting the general welfare was a real and true thingy thing that the U.S. government should be doing. Yet, in spite of that, they started striking down a proverbial shit-ton of New Deal laws. The National Recovery Act got shot down because Congress gave too much power to the president, they said. But wait, there is way more. In some cases, they were unanimous, as well they should have been, because FDR was way overreaching, like taking private property without just compensation. But other decisions were pretty idiotic, like saying Congress didn't have the power to regulate the poultry industry or pass the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was designed to regulate supply and prices to help get farmers back on their feet. And lots of this was all because Charles Evans Hughes didn't personally buy into the Commerce Clause and the whole concept of regulating commerce. The case that really wants to make you stick a plastic fork up someone's nose came over a law that would regulate the coal industry with minimum wages, maximum working hours, and price regulation. Hughes, Roberts, and the Four Horsemen said with presumably straight faces that coal mining was not interstate commerce. Coal, mined in a couple dozen states or more and shipped to every stinking one of them, was not interstate commerce. I mean, that's the kind of ruling that would make that jackbooted butt-sickle Scalia proud. So FDR had his evil minions draw up a bill whereby if any justice turned 70 and refused to retire, the president could appoint a younger justice to the court. I'm unclear if they had to share the big leather chair. The beauty of this was that the idea came from something that righty-tighty Justice McReynolds had written when he was younger, suggesting a kind of forced retirement at 70. By this time, though, McReynolds was 217, having been appointed by King George II. The court-packing plan failed, and it should have. Changing the rules in the middle of the game is not the answer, because it will inevitably come back to bite you and your happy ass very soon. However, the bill did force Roberts to sober up and vote to uphold a minimum wage law for the state of Washington, and it made Van Devanter retire. Roosevelt replaced him with Hugo Black, a one-time KKK member from Alabama who became a fairly reliable liberal vote on the court for 34 years, and the New Dealers lived happily ever after. But for a few years, four to six angry old men on the Supreme Court, men who believed in the legal equivalent of, in my day, held the entire recovery of the nation underwater like an Abu Ghraib prison guard. The saddest part of this whole angry old men thing to me that I see is a lot of my own personal friends are becoming angry old men, which again includes women and people who aren't old. You know, including women and men under the same word is just a good way to poke the bear these days, isn't it? Even if it's not a pronoun. Anyway, I suspect I'm not the only one undergoing this experience with people they know. These are people I know from 
high school or college or comedy clubs who have become these all caps using your dog peed on my rose bush so I'm getting my shotgun kind of folks. And let me say, I am not talking about the things that people really should get unhingedly pissed off about, like well-done steak, or ass clowns who pull into the right-turn-only lane and then just sit there. It's must-turn, you illiterate wanker! Move your ass! Turn! Goddammit! Turn! (sighs) I'm only talking about the kind of inexplicably silly anger that ruins their whole day and takes everyone else down with them. It's almost always over something that doesn't affect them. It's them trying to control other people's lives. Over something like a TV show or book that no one is forcing them to watch or read. I'm honestly thinking of mocking up a picture of a remote control and just PMing it to these people with the tiny arrow that says, It's this button here. See? Problem solved. Here's another example. I don't like tattoos, so I'm not getting one. That's it. That's the whole equation. In other words, if it's not hurting you, then shut up and let other people enjoy their lives. Drag queen story time is harmless fun that entertains little kids. Nobody is touching anybody. Rap music? Don't listen to it. Lord knows I don't. I mean, don't rattle my freaking windows with your subwoofers either, but if you can't grasp that Frank Sinatra was the best song phraser in the history of music, that is your cross to bear, not mine. And don't get your granny panties all wedged up your crack because somebody else's panties are showing in public. These were the same people wearing hip huggers and miniskirts when they were kids. It made their own parents screaming mad. And right after they finished with, where do you think you're going dressed like that? They added, put gas in the car and shut the front door. I'm not air conditioning the whole damn neighborhood. When did these angry old bastards develop the inability to remember their own youth? Here's where I count myself lucky. The friends who I was closest to years ago are still, by and large, pretty much reasonable and accepting of people and totally capable of waiting to make fun of the dumbasses till they're not in the room. So I guess I picked well. And that makes me feel really happy. So let's all help the world lighten up a touch. I'd suggest you find someone who doesn't agree with you on something and give them a spontaneous hug. But then again, they're probably armed, so that's probably a bad idea. I mentioned it last episode, but hey, my newest book starts in wide release in the next day or two. It's book number 11 as far as total publishing goes, but it's my very first novel. It's titled Wingo, The Remarkable Life of an Unremarkable Man. According to the jacket blurb I wrote, it's a captivating and hysterical romp through an American century of life, love, race, and baseball. But if you're not inclined to believe that sort of tripe, my wife loved it and called it sweet and funny, and one of my dogs licked the book. Not the copy you'll buy, of course. That one is lick-free. And you can get it via Amazon or order it through your favorite bookstore. You can even get a signed copy via my website. Anyway, that is the shameless plug. Thanks a bunch. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.